Welcome to Ag in Conversation, where Emily and Mavamwe, two friends and agri-optimists from Otago, New Zealand, sit down weekly to digest the hottest topics in the world of ag, bringing a deeper level of discussion and understanding to the issues and opportunities faced by agriculture and rural communities both in New Zealand and around the globe. Good morning, Emily. How are you going today? How was your weekend? Yeah, good, thanks, Mavamwe. Had a great weekend, actually. Did a bit of a ticky tour around the South Island um, for the coast to coast. We went up the West Coast and then watched the race across and then back down through the Mackenzie country last night. What an epic event the coast to coast is. So well run. So hats off to the organisers and so awesome to see um, all the athletes, you know, doing their best, ticking it off their bucket list, but also to see those pro athletes just like going really hard and like the times they're posting. Oh, yeah, pretty inspirational stuff, really. So, yeah, really enjoyed it. And um, Izzy did really well in the caravan, and I managed to navigate the caravan into all the transitions. So, it was a bit of a win 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 on all fronts, I think. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. How was your weekend? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. You had a um, your own endurance race running there, didn't you? Just trying to get you and Izzy through it all. Um, yeah, no, good weekend here. Um, quite one on farm and just getting my daughter in for rowing practice as per usual, um, being a taxi driver. But uh, yeah, she's away to nationals this week. So um, a very big, exciting week in our household. We'll wait for all the results to start coming in and see how they go because obviously, as you're well aware, they're racing against North Island teams they've never had a go against before. So it'll be interesting to see how they stack up. Yeah, that's really exciting. Well, good luck to everyone up there. Um, the other cool thing actually about the weekend and the coast was I re- bumped into some podcast li- listeners in real life. Um, so that was a wee thrill for me and really exciting to hear some feedback and um, yeah, talk to some of our listeners. So yeah, it was really cool. Oh, that's so nice, Emily. It's nice to have that in-person connection, isn't it? And Because and, you sort of make this and we send it out into the ether and we don't really know who's listening. So yeah. A uh, big shout out to those who are listening and taking the time to give us feedback. It's so appreciated. Yeah, very much appreciated. Yeah, very cool. Right. I thought we'd start off by just t- dipping back into the protests in Europe because they have continued to escalate. There's more news all the time. And so I thought it was worth just ducking into that before we get into our big topics today. Um, so the French have taken over. Some of the Germans are still protesting, but that's sort of dying back. But the French have now taken the bath, the relay baton, shall we say, and in true French style are upping the ante. There is no one who can protest like the French, um, as I said last time. We now have um, <laughs> manure and the cleaning out from the barns, etc., being dumped all over main roads. They've all gone down to Paris to blockade the roads into Paris. Um, they are, I've even seen pictures of tires dumped all over the roads which has been really interesting um and they're protesting a lot of the similar things to the germans but one point of difference i noticed when uh, watching a few news reports and reading a few articles were the was the emphasis on the free trade agreement that europe has with new zealand so we are now the bad guys <laughs> over there with our lamb that is being produced a lot more efficiently and a lot more cost effectively and unfortunately that is putting a lot of pressure on the French producers so that's part of what they are complaining about to their government. Um, Again the theme of family farms being lost this just seems to be a constant throughout 
Europe, really, that the fear that we're just going to go to corporate farming. Um, and I think that's something we can relate to in New Zealand as well. Everyone wants to keep the family farm alive, but it's a really small family farm in France. Some of the, the farms that they showed on the articles and in the, the news reports were really small numbers. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how they can try to survive, to be honest. That is really interesting. And um, interesting now that New Zealand's coming into it in the EU, because I know from our side, and we probably could do a whole other episode on this, is we didn't necessarily have a lot of comfort and satisfaction with where that free trade agreement landed either. So um, interesting to hear that there's discourse on both sides. <laughs> Wasn't it uh, James Shaw we talked about last week said it's good we've got both sides are upset with the outcome? It's like, well, okay. <laughs> Yeah, no one's happy with the EU trade agreement. Um, I was also like a slight side point to that. Um, you probably saw the fake photographs that are coming out of these protests. There were a few fake bits of footage come out of the German protest, but the one I saw spiraling around the old um, Facebook over the weekend and last week was the one of the Eiffel Tower and the bales of straw stacked up almost as high as the Eiffel Tower in Paris and how that's actually an AI photo. Um, I'm sure yourself, you would have picked it out pretty quickly. And I think most of us farmers were discussing how the heck they stacked those bales so high. The fact that none of the tractors in front of the bales had loaders on them. There were no telehandlers or any ways to make that stack. And a lot of the tractors looked like they were from the 1920s. But interesting that a lot of the comments under the Facebook photos were, oh, we support you and your farmers, well done, France, first, you know, doing these protests and, and we love what you've done creating this straw brocade in the middle of Paris. And it's just really interesting that a lot of people just saw that and thought that that was real. And it's going to lead to some interesting, well, situations, I'd say, going forward, just the fact that... AI can be done in a way and it's getting better and it's only going to get a lot better um, so that people may not actually be able to tell the difference, even those of us who are across those subjects. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, maybe, because I saw a different one. I saw one where they looked like they were bailing the Arc de Triomphe roundabout. Um, And that was quite quite realistic. But obviously they would have had to plant that a long time ago to be bailing it. And I think we probably would have heard about it from before now. But, yeah, I think these deep fakes, I think is what they're termed, is um, are turning up mm. in more and more places. And it is something to be aware of, particularly when we're reading news. It comes into that misinformation, disinformation piece that we are constantly having to scan um, and understand, is this true? Yeah, I think it's just, we're just going to have to be really vigilant. And while this happened in our field of expertise, if it was something else that we had no knowledge on and we didn't understand that you'd have to actually plant the grass before you can cut it on the um, (laughs) Champs-Élysées or whatever was happening, yeah, we could easily be fooled ourselves. They're just something to keep an eye on. Um, Just while we're touching on the protests, there's actually something even closer to home for me is what's happening in Wales at the moment. And so there's been a few large meetings of farmers and some protests happening. And it's all based around the Welsh Assembly Government or the Senev in Wales um, have put out a new proposed sustainable farming scheme and it's out to consultation at the moment. And there is a lot of backlash. So the main driver behind the scheme 
is that the Senate has said that the biodiversity in Wales is falling off a cliff. They said there are 666 species that are threatened with extinction, and they've already had 73 go extinct. So they say they cannot carry on like this, and we need to change the direction. All right, fair enough. Nobody's going to argue with that. Um, but they are putting the hierarchy of needs in agriculture as biodiversity first, uh, something that we've been seeing. Hierarchy of needs is something we've been discussing a lot in New Zealand. Um, what is the primary need? Is it feeding our families? Is it communities? Is it water quality? And mm. they put it as biodiversity. Um, so, and they've come up with it now because they're having to manage the transition. They're leaving the EU, the whole Brexit situation. They've got to come up with something. So this is what they're coming up with now. How will it affect farmers? Well, the FUW, which is the Farmers Union of Wales, submission has cited other issues with the scheme because it is wholly focused on public goods and environmental outcomes because it's failing to take into account many other issues such as the prosperity of a farm, the social impacts, the community, jobs and culture as long as along with the damage this will do to the Welsh language. Um, I don't know how much you know about it, but the Welsh language is a lot more prevalent in the rural areas. It's spoken a lot more. Agriculture is the highest percentage of Welsh speakers of most industries in Wales um, at over 40, close to 50% actually, I think, um, at least speak some Welsh. So if you start cutting jobs, everyone starts moving away, you start losing those connections. Um, and they were really worried as well that payments were only going to go to landowners because everything's quite based around what you're doing on the land um, rather than to the tenant farmers. That's another issue. And they're also worried about how this is going to affect those who have common land grazing, which is another whole other issue that we don't really have here. But, you know, you've got blocks of land and everyone has a turn to graze it. You know, management, etc., is managed by the community. Um the FUW and NFU, which is uh, National Farmers Union, and it's the NFU company, uh, the Welsh one, they are stating that there'll be a loss of 5,522 jobs, which is 11% of the Welsh workforce. Wales has an average of 38,300 farmers employing 11,500 workers. So that's quite a lot of people losing their jobs. Um, the average farm income in Wales is only 29,600 British pounds, which is roughly about $60,000. So it's, it's not a huge earner anyway. Um, and one of the biggest things that they're complaining about is the fact that 10% of their land is now going to have to be turned over to trees. Um, we've been through this. It's, it's not okay just to say mm. trees. You need to count into effect what's actually on the land. You can't just say, I'm going to chuck 10% into pine trees, you know, right tree, right place. There's so many issues coming up there. There's going to be nitrogen reductions. And then, of course, the stock will be reduced because 10% of your land has, grazing land has now gone. Is it going to factor in that what you already have, what woodlands you already have on your farm? Um, and so stock numbers are going to go. And so, therefore, revenue is going to drop off. So, basically, they are at the top at a tipping point now where they're submitting on this, but there are a lot of farmers in Wales who are absolutely distraught because they just cannot see a way forward. You know, mental health hotlines have been mm. seeing huge spikes in numbers. Um, 
of people calling and yeah it's just an, another instance of how around the world everyone is battling with what we're dealing with here really similar issues to what we're dealing with here um almost slightly behind what we've had to deal with um just be really interesting to see what happens next and how the senate is going to respond whether they're going to listen to what's being said by the farming lobby groups or whether they're just going to plow on yeah interesting yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for that, Mavemoy, as our Welsh-European correspondent. Um, I think <laughs> it's really interesting to see the commonalities with the New Zealand legislation and what we're going through or have been through and what um, is sort of coming through the regions at the moment with the land and water plans as well and how that's actually being enacted. And I think when you look at that, um, it's kind of similar to New Zealand and how we're not necessarily taking this holistic view of the decisions. Like we're sort of quite segregated and focusing on one thing. Um, and even their wording there, you know, they wanted to focus on biodiversity, but they're talking about trees, which doesn't necessarily, like you say, there's a whole lot of unintended consequences potentially um, that we've seen in New Zealand that potentially they could learn from. It feels like, Every country is almost trying to reinvent the wheel on this piece, particularly around Indigenous biodiversity and Indigenous language, indig Indigenous well-beings or, you know, whatever words they're using. Um, and it feels like there could be some group learning um, to sort of halve some pain or even just reduce that worry, I guess, because um, we know, you know, how that impacted or it continues to impact our agricultural sector and the wider New Zealand society as a whole. And um, I think that if there's something that can be done to, to reduce that in other countries, you know, potentially would be very worthwhile. Yeah, very much agree. And I think if there was somewhere where everyone could work together, but I think a lot of it and what we've seen here with the recent election is people underestimate the farmers at times and they've just been chipped away at chipped away at chipped away at and quietly we all do quietly get on and just get get things done don't we um but at mm. some point everyone tips over you know welsh farmers aren't exactly known for protesting but so they've got to come out because it's their livelihoods and it's just it's gone too far and i think we need just a slight rebalancing back which hopefully we will now get in new zealand but we'll wait and see um yeah still looking after the future and the, of the land and, and preparing ourselves for the future but in a way that actually allows sustainable growth. Yeah, and I mean, no one more than farmers knows about how you need to look after the land to make sure that it is, you know, able to produce season after season. So that's really interesting. And it kind of takes us through to the next issue, which was the deep dive that we were wanting to focus on this week, um, which you're going to take us through a little bit, is around food security um, and how that's sort of becoming what is a real worldwide issue. And... Um, it sort of seems to be rearing it. So it came up in COVID um, and it's come up with the Ukrainian war and post-Brexit and things, but it seems to have come up again. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually, this all came up with having a phone call with my sister um, over in the UK. But we anyway, we got talking about food security. It's something that sort of bugs me and I don't think we take enough of a... Um, enough focus on it although it is increasing a lot around the globe now after like you said covid when we in new zealand suddenly realized oh actually we're on the bottom of the world here and ships are not going to come to us if they've 
got a cheaper destination, they can drop off their goods and disappear off and get another load in instead of coming all the way down here. You know, we noticed that in COVID. We've now got the issues with Suez Canal. You know, the supply chain is not as shored up as we necessarily think it is. And it's definitely becoming something that people are more conscious of. Uh, so I thought I'd just use, uh, buying into my role as the European correspondent, I just used the UK as an example because there was a lot of data available on the UK, um, whereas New Zealand has less available on this subject. But okay, so I'll throw some facts and figures at you and we'll chat from there. But take the UK for example, Britain is 61% self-sufficient in food according to their government figures. Bearing in mind that at the moment, some of that 61% is exported to Europe and other places. Da and that's down from a high of 78% back in the 1980s, which is fair enough. That was when we were producing excessive amounts of food and we had the butter and sugar mountains and all that in Europe and why we had to have the common agricultural policy reforms that we did. 50% um, of the UK veggies are grown in the UK, but only 16% of its fruit which is quite interesting. And I guess that's because they love all the, you know, the products from Spain and yeah. you know, we've got easy access in the UK to the European market. They currently import 48% of the food, which is currently consumed in the UK. Now, the NFU, who I mentioned before, the National Farmers Union of the UK, they're calling for a close watch on this because if we are not careful, that number can drop very quickly. That's our sufficiency number. Um, current estimates put the current supply of food in the UK at between three to 10 days worth of food should they get cut off from all supply chains. Now, okay, that's quite an unlikely scenario, but it's still one that we need to play out and we need to be aware of. And we in New Zealand, even more so than the UK, I'd say, um, which is actually quite scary that in three to 10 days, they could be completely out of food. Um, mm. Yeah. So that led me to start looking into what what are people doing? What fun, creative, what ideas, what's out there? How how can we manage this? Because, you know, there's only so much land and we're all quite efficient farmers, mm. especially in the first world countries. We're doing what we can. We're only going to end up reducing stock numbers, especially with all the environmental pressures being put on us. So what on earth do we do? And um, one solution which came to my attention, which was fascinating, was because of this phone call with my sister. So she's um, a design director at the Reef Group of Architects in London. And... They do some amazing projects, but the current project they're working on is data storage solutions. So I'm sure you know all about data storage solutions, yep. but just a quick for the listeners, if they don't, it's basically all that stuff that you put up into the cloud doesn't actually just float around in a cloud. Sorry, I know that's very patronizing, but it doesn't float around in the cloud. It goes down into storage uh, systems all around the world, and then it's ready for you to access as and when you need it. And the demand for data storage is just skyrocketing. Yeah, you can't even, she said, it's, it's absolutely insane how much we actually need and the projected amounts we're going to need, especially as we were just talking about the AI, what we're going to need in a few years' time when Ooh. AI is running a whole load more of our functions. Anyway, so they're building a massive data storage unit. It's going to be the... Europe's largest data storage center in East London. Now, the problem with that is it's not a very ecologically sound building. When you just take a data storage building, it's a big pile of concrete with a bunch of machines inside pumping out energy and taking a lot of energy. So they've set out with a mission to make this a carbon zero um, enterprise. 
And how they're going to, so one of the ways they're going to do this is by having an urban farm, vertical farming. So they're working with the University of Leicester and they are putting in a farm that is going to be, provide its energy from the data storage system. So yeah, right. they'll be able to grow things like tomatoes, strawberries, all the fruit and veg that they would traditionally not be able to grow in the UK, especially not uh, most of the year round. And so they'll have these vertical mm. um, gardening systems, vertical farming systems, and be able to grow and produce a whole load of fruit and veg that normally wouldn't be accessible to your average Joe in winter in the UK to grow, which is fascinating. Um, so the idea is to produce enough food equal to a thousand acres worth of production normally. Sorry, figures are in acres, um, but on around 15 acres of land. So that's incredible, yeah, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating that they'll be able to do that? That's really cool. Yeah. And that vertical farming, yeah. well, we haven't and really so, seen that. There's been a lot of chat about it, but we haven't really seen too many examples pop up in New Zealand as yet, and let alone creative thinking like this. So well, that's what I thought, sort of because a, a lot of the time when people talk Sorry? Mm. Oh, I was going to say, is it a, it's probably not a world first to make, um, you know, to reuse the energy coming off a data centre, but this is particularly creative and interesting around food supply. Mm. Yeah, and they, they are, um, to be honest, I don't think many data supply places actually reuse their um, data storage centres, reuse their energy much, to be fair, at the moment. But they're on a mission to do that because of the carbon zero goals that they have. Mm. Um, they're also talking about um, pumping some of the heat into water, water to heat transfer to water to then send it through the existing radiator systems in the local community to heat homes in the UK, which would be fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things that's often put out there, and there was this article that was circulating on the web in the last few weeks talking about how homegrown vegetables aren't the most efficient and, and you know, urban gardening isn't as efficient as normal farming. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, that's fair enough, but we need to produce more food in a smaller area. Solutions like this, it suddenly becomes more efficient. And is that maybe where we need to look? And I was thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, people couldn't easily get quite upset and be like, oh, well, you know, what about traditional farming methods? But I don't think this is a one or the other situation i think it's an and not an or situation i think we can work together and end up having a much safer food supply system for our population to hopefully be able to offer fruit and veg to those who might normally find it out of their budget quite frankly and and is this maybe where the future is going yeah i think it's a great and solution and it's also a great um, cross-sectoral, cross-industry solution as well of um, working together, kind of like what we were just saying, working together to collaborate and to reduce the footprint of one thing, well, two things really. Um, and, yeah, I think we need to see more of this to move forward and to achieve some of those um, policies that we want, but also to achieve some of our um, climate change goals. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how we could roll this out in New Zealand and what sort of cooperative, like you said, real cooperative working with big business. Because it's often something that mm. you sort of stick to your own lane, don't you? you? You try and work with an agricultural business because it's what you know. 
But hey, who would have ever thought of data storage units and farming going hand in hand? But in, in, in some way, it can. I think that probably opens up thoughts. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. I mean, we'll make sure that that's in the show notes so people can look up that project and um, find out a bit more if they want to. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, right, well, to touch on the final, a bit of something light and fluffy for us uh, to finish off our podcast. Um, I don't know how many of you have been across or follow Ballerina Farm on Instagram. But there's been drama in the agriculture world, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the drama seems to have only helped her um, engagement. To be honest, <laughs> uh, we we both yeah. Emily's followed her for years, and I've followed her for a little while. Um, yeah, just it's it's a real basic. She's a homesteading type person on the world stage. So she's over in the US. Her and her husband they have a farm. She's just had her eighth baby they live very much that simple life they sell that they sell products they sell aprons and all sorts of bits and bobs that she uses in her kitchens and then they do direct to consumer meat packages and meat boxes that they produce on their farm uh so sounds lovely right well she also does pageants and last year she won mrs american and wonderful well pregnant then, of course, she had the baby, her eighth daughter, her eighth child, a wee girl. And so the baby's arrived. And then she had a pageant with Miss Universe coming up very soon after the birth. I think it was like six or eight weeks, wasn't it, Emily? It might have even been less. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. She's kind of fallen off my algorithm again, but until like the last couple of weeks when we've been talking about this. But it's, yeah, very close <laughs> to the birth of the child. It seems like she was in a swimsuit on stage. <laughs> very odd. <laughs> on stage and that seems to have set the whole internet on fire like everyone is freaking yeah. out about the fact that she's like she's a reason it's called ballerina farm like she's an athlete she's been a, a ballerina her whole life she often is doing yeah, i think she's a juilliard trained professional ballerina i think that was her job yeah. prior to when they sort of came into the farming world she's not exactly joe bloggs who's you know any of us lot who just has taken up this no she's a trained athlete so she's got the physique for it um and yes so everyone got upset because she's on stage looking incredible at miss universe pageant with a tiny baby who is yeah being fed as she's getting done up um also, people are getting a bit upset because her husband is the child of the Blue Jet Empire in the US, which apparently is some airline and a lot of very rich family. Anyway, um, they all feel that this life that they're portraying is not the simple life and is not, it's, it's all a facade and it's not real and it's some kind of thing to flog, flog things to you. So what do you think about this, Emily? Well, first of all, I think we've all got to remember that Instagram is a bit of a highlight reel. And I know we hear this all the time, but it really is. And so you choose what you put on the internet, really, don't you? Like, there's no requirement to put everything and anything. And then secondly, so there's no requirement to let people know everything about your life. And then secondly... Um, there's a lot of assumptions being jumped to. And I'm not saying people are jumping, but, you know, she. there's a lot of assumptions that they should, that this is all family money or this is being back, backed by this or, um, you know, it's unrealistic that she's on stage. You know, how can she possibly be there? But I think 
what that a lot personally I kind of feel a lot of it's projecting you know mm-hmm. we're not feeling comfortable so why should she feel comfortable or you know we're not in that stage and I think we see this a lot in New Zealand and it's so sad the whole tall poppy thing instead of supporting other women to have their own you know in their own businesses or supporting people to do their best quite often when we're not in their shoes it actually turns into a negative conversation and people get torn down of that can't be real no they're not doing you know there's got to be something there you know it's too good to be true um but I think at the end of the day like if, if she's happy living a nice little life in Utah with eight eight children and um you know doing their direct-to-consumer boxes, which look phenomenal um, and a great mm. way to reach their their market, which, as we know, the American market's a lot different to he- what we've got here in New Zealand, um, then good on them. If they're making a life of it and they're enjoying it, then I have no issue with her making her own cheese or bread or, you know, whatever she's she's doing. It's, it's sort of none – for me, it's interesting to watch um, – how they're doing it and I think I got into it through the direct-to-consumer I was really curious about what they were doing there um, and how they were telling their story mm-hmm. but um, yeah to, to see how that's evolved in this recent media flurry over it is is quite um, upsetting really and I think a negative offshoot that I could see here in the New Zealand side of things is we're always telling farmers they need to tell their stories better and I mean um, you do a great job over at Penmark Farms of doing this, but we tell people what they need to tell their stories. But then as soon as they do tell their stories, people are saying, no, that can't be true. And it's how can we get how can we get people to talk more about what they're actually doing um, if people are just going to tear them down? I, it's it just, I don't know. I just think that you can't expect anything from people on social media it's a full they choose what they put up basically yeah i agree with you and i think we have to take some responsibility as the watcher so you Mm. need to understand like i think we're all grown adults if we're looking at a lady with eight children making a meal from scratch and by scratch i mean she's literally doing everything apart from grinding the flour like she makes everything from scratch for the posts she puts up we need to realize that there's probably pure chaos behind her out of shot. Like just, it isn't real life. Like we have to take some responsibility as the watchers. Just understand she's doing her thing. There'll be good times. There'll be bad times. Most people don't put all their bad times on. She is actually really honest. And she has a number of um, videos and reels out there saying, I don't make everything from scratch every day. Sometimes I just whip up some dinner rolls and we all have bread and jam, you know? She is really honest about it. So I don't think that it's really, like you said, it's it's more a reflection of what the watcher is feeling internally. And um, I've heard, we, we, we both listened to a podcast that, that I've got you onto and both got quite mad about their take on it because they thought it was anti-feminist for her to be having eight children and, you know, making all the food from scratch and farming. But actually, there are plenty of people out there who live that life and they want to see that reflected back to them. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's just a life choice. And, you know, Pip Cameron has done an amazing job here in New Zealand with her What's for Smoko because she said... And same with Jazz Medicine as well. Yeah, Jazz, yeah. And often they've said that, you know, that 
the station cook is almost looked down upon as a, a role on the farm and the farming wife is looked down upon, which is completely ridiculous because they're usually doing 12 jobs like of other people's jobs. I regularly say I wish I had a wife, you know, um, because it's so hard to do the farming work and then come home and do the homework. And so to have someone who's running the accounts, cooking all the food for the shepherds is such an important role and we mustn't belittle that. Just because, you know, the feminist ideal is running a Fortune 500 company, it doesn't mean to say that the other achievements are any less. And it's, it's why can't we celebrate each other's wins, whatever line they're in? Yeah, I just found it cross because it was projecting someone else's vision of success onto the, someone else. And I think mm. we've just got to be careful that we keep our heads in our own lane and, like, you know, worry about yourself and not worry about you know just because this woman over here is doing this thing doesn't mean I can't do this thing and it it just seemed like it was a um almost a go at this woman for for choosing what she wanted to choose um but on that same realm around the feminist side I've, I've seen a lot of these other sort of reels coming in social media around why millennials are going back to homesteading you know why are we going back to preserving and why sourdough was such a or fed, but I think it's sort of stuck. You know, why are we going back to everyone yes. having a veggie garden and, you know, people more and more milking a house cow? Um, and I think one top reason I've seen this, you know, it's people saying, why are all these millennials getting grandma and granddad hobbies? Is that back to, um, back to simplicity in this crazy world, you know, how they're kind of making sense of things, they're using their hands. It's away from the screen time. And then the other side of it I've seen is around the cost of living at the moment is it's a needs must to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. um, that They're having to pick up some of those things that happened, you know, when um, there just wasn't the availability um, of, of produce and we're just having to go back to some of those older, well, what was previously done. And I guess even to round off the episode, what, Link back to your food security. People are wanting post-COVID. Um, exactly. People are wanting to take a bit more control and make sure they can provide for their families. And I think um, we've, I think we've got to make sure you know that we look at things holistically. And um, and there's something to learn from everyone. And I just don't think that this woman's out there to um, have a political stance, as some people are suggesting, or she's out there to um, say that you can't be a businesswoman or you can't do this or you can't do that. You know, she, she's a businesswoman in her own right with the farming enterprise that they're growing. But, um, yeah, I, I just think sometimes we need to stick to it and keep our heads in our own lane and just not get too bothered about what other people on the internet are doing. I think, I think we could, yeah, if we could get a few more people to do that, we can solve a lot of the world's problems, Emily. Yeah, and, and like you just said, the whole point of feminism and giving women all these rights is the right to choose. You choose running a Fortune 500 company. You choose eight children and baking sourdough. Do it, whatever. I think if we all just work together, lift the women up together, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I think that's what we need to do and stop getting worried about what the other people are doing if it matches with your ideals or not. Thanks for joining us as we trade the fat on what is front of mind in the ag world this week. We look forward to sharing next week's episode with you. Head to our socials and let us know what you think. We welcome all feedback and would love suggestions on what you want us to dive into next. 
If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate if you showed your support by sharing, liking and rating our podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.